We're going to be continuing this morning our series entitled Building a New Testament Church. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the topic of prayers, I said earlier. Before we do, I'd like to practice what we preach. And I'd like to begin with the word of prayer. And so let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing and help on our time in His Word this morning. Dear Lord, we are mindful this morning of the fact that uh, Your Word tells us that You are returning. As we just sang about, You've called us to be watchful and ready. I pray, Lord, that as we look into Your Word and study it this morning, that You would once again impress upon us the importance of that alertness. The importance of being ready for Your return. So that we might be pleasing to You when You come. And I pray that You would help us this morning uh, to take the Word of God to heart. Help us to understand it. Lord, I pray that You would help us to submit our lives, our thoughts, our desires, and all that we are to You and to the truth of Your Word. We'll give you the praise and the thanks as you use your word to do your work here today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter and chapter 4. We're going to take a close look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 7 this morning. But before we get to verse 7, I'd like to take just a minute and look at the context of this passage because I think that in the context leading up to verse 7 Peter actually touches on all three of the core values that we have already studied and uh, so I want to just look at that really quickly and see that he kind of hits on these themes a little bit and then get to verse 7 and we will continue with this Idea. So in verse 1 and verse 2, <clears throat> Peter says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I don't want to get into great detail here. We're not going to actually study these verses in depth. Peter is not suggesting that when you come to Christ and you're saved and born again, that you no longer struggle with sin. That is not what Peter is saying. He's not teaching a form of Christian perfectionism as is common in certain circles. What he is doing and he's telling us here is that the suffering of Christ sets an example for us who are believers, who are born again by faith in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would no longer serve sin, but that we would instead serve the will of God. And as, as we defined it three weeks ago, this is what we said, uh, this is, is what, how we def defined God-centered worship, right? God-centered worship meant and means 
doing the will of God, making that will the primary and central focus. In verse 3, Peter continues. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now it's interesting that Peter says when we worship God alone and we seek to do his will, this means that something is different in our life. Right? That instead of serving our sinful flesh and fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, what do we do? Well, we walk in the Spirit. And Peter says, not only that, but it's confusing because those unbelievers, they don't know why it is that we don't do these things. He says that we don't, uh, they think it's strange that we do not run with them in the same flood of dissipations. Isn't it strange that we as Christians don't do all of those wicked things? And we, don't, uh, uh, we, we don't party the way the world parties. And we don't, uh, uh, we don't indulge in those things that the world thinks are so important to indulge in as Christians. And Peter says they think it's strange. Well, yeah, they do. But it's very simple. We, we talked about this. This is, again, none other than our second core value, spirit-controlled living. Paul made that very clear in, in Galatians chapter 5, that we are to walk in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so Peter has touched on this as well. And of course, when unbelievers see this and they realize that we don't uh, follow them, we don't do these things with them, Peter says they speak evil of us, so we we may suffer persecution and mocking because we don't do those things. But we're also told not to worry because God will hold them accountable for their actions. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say this, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, this verse is a very fairly controversial verse when it comes to interpretation. I'm not going to get into all that this, this morning. I'll just say this, that Peter is talking here about preaching the gospel to those who are spiritually dead. And when the gospel is preached to those who are spiritually dead, they are no longer dead, but they live. That's the whole point of preaching the gospel. So that dead men can live. This is why we value word-focused teaching. Because it's by hearing the word of God that dead men can come alive. And that's the whole point of the scriptures that we have been given to preach and proclaim. And Peter says, this is why the gospel is preached. And so Peter touches on these themes as he gets to verse 7. 
And you'll notice in these verses that we've already read, Peter has also introduced the idea of the coming judgment of the Lord. And so, it's only natural if Peter has introduced the idea that the Lord is coming in judgment, that we ought to consider what difference does that make in our lives as Christians, right? If Christ is returning in judgment then what impact, what difference does that make for us as Christians? And that's what Peter gets to in verse 7. And he says this, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, if I could say this in a sentence, well, actually it is already in a sentence, but if I could restate it for you, here's how I would say what Peter is telling us. Prayer is both the right response to and the natural product of faith in Christ's return. Prayer is both the right response to and the natural product of faith in Christ's return. And I think this is important. If we truly believe that Christ could return at any moment, then we should pray. I mean, that's just a natural outcome. If we truly believe that Christ could return at any moment, then we should pray. And our prayers should be shaped by our belief that Christ is coming. So we ought to pray. But we ought to pray informed by and shaped by our faith in the fact that Christ is going to return. And so I'd like to look at these two kind of ideas, these two concepts this morning, and then I'd just like to ask two questions at the end about prayer as a core value of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And the two questions are this. How can anyone tell that we value prayer as a church? And how should we devote ourselves to prayer as a church? So let's take a look at these two ideas here that Peter kind of touches on. The first one is this. That prayer is the right response for we who live in the last days. Prayer is a right response, a right, the right response for we who live in the last days. Notice what Peter says at the beginning of the verse. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore. So this is the motivation. This is the driving force. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. I put it here a little bit differently. I said that we who live in the last days ought to pray. What do we mean by that, living in the last days? Well, what did Peter mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? Well, again, the context here is helpful. In verse 5, Peter focused on, notice what Peter talks about in verse 5. He focused on him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Well, who is that? Who is it that is ready to judge the living and the dead? Anybody want to help me out? It's not a trick question. Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
Paul talks about that in Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching there in, a in Athens, right? He talks about the judgment of God that is coming on all men that has been given to Jesus Christ. And Paul says the sign that he was given the authority of judgment is his resurrection, right? which, of course, led to all sorts of chaos in Athens. The point here is this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is talking about, verse 5, him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus Christ is the focus here. We won't turn there, but you can look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, because Paul talks about this same idea of Jesus Christ, the one who is going to come in judgment. Then you can look at verse 6, because in verse 6, he also talks about judgment. But here he's talking about judgment in this life, and talking about believers who are judged in this life by men, but they live unto the Lord. And what Peter is saying here is, you may, as a believer, suffer and die in this life, but whatever happens here and now, whatever suffering you may endure because of your uh, uh, commitment to the Lord and your desire to live for Him, and the fact that that leads you to not live like an unbeliever, whatever suffering you may endure, he says, you will live unto the Lord. So there is the hope and the expectation of eternal security here. Believer, you can go through any sort of suffering in this life because you know what's waiting for you in the future, which is heaven, life. And so there is the Lord Jesus Christ coming in judgment. But in the same context, there's not fear for the Christian of facing judgment and being condemned. Jesus Christ is coming in judgment, and what does that mean for the believer? It means life. It means that you're guaranteed life. That's secure. And so then in verse 7, he talks about Christ's coming back. When will this happen? And he says that the end of all things is at hand. That, that, the phrase there, at hand, literally means has drawn near. I don't have a lot of time to let you puzzle on this this morning, but how could Peter say that the end of all things has drawn near? I mean, First Peter's written more than 1,900 years ago. How could Peter say more than 1,900 years ago that the end of all things has drawn near? He's not even saying that it is drawing near. He says it has drawn near. How could that make sense? What does that say about us today? Well, <coughs> I, would say, I would say it to you this way. One thing that it, does, it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean we should be going out looking for all of the signs of the times to see if we can figure out when Christ is coming back. Peter says it's already drawn near. The end of all things has already drawn near. And so something has happened in the past which means that it is already near. It's already at hand. It's already uh, close by. I think we understand what Peter is saying here. Peter 
is really following very closely on what he was taught by Jesus himself, that the coming of Christ, as a part of God's outworking of his plan, I mean, just think about it. God has already, he's already created the world, created mankind. That was a pretty major step in God's plan, right? It's already been done. Men have already fallen into sin. That was another pretty major step in the plan. Uh, then you have the promise of the Redeemer, and you have Abraham comes along, and God reaches down to Abraham and divides, separates Abraham out from all the rest of the nations and says, Abraham, gives Abraham this covenant, this promise, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse you, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? They have the Abrahamic covenant, and, and then Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, come on the scene, and God makes covenant with them. And then he makes covenant with their king, David. Promises that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. We mentioned last week the sure mercies of David in Isaiah 55, which is a reference to that covenant promise of God to David. And who fulfilled that? Well, according to the book of Acts, it was none other than Jesus Christ who came as the fulfillment of that promise to David. Jesus Christ came. And so God's promises that He made to Abraham and to David are being fulfilled when Christ comes to the earth. And of course, Christ, when Peter writes this, Christ has already come in the flesh and He's lived and He has died on that cross and He has raised again and He has ascended into heaven. And all of these things have taken place. And so Peter says, listen, Understand, all of these events have taken place. The end of all things has drawn near. What are we waiting for? We're just waiting for the end. We're just waiting for the end. Everything else has happened. We're just waiting for the end. I mean, that's what Peter is getting at here. The end of all things is at hand. He's saying, that the end is near. Nothing else must take place. Everything God has predicted has happened. All of the things that God has said would happen in His plan have happened. And so all we are waiting for now is for the end to come. Well, Peter was waiting for the end in the first century. Paul was waiting for the end in the first century. John was waiting for the end in the first century. And yet, they died without seeing the end. And for the next 19 centuries, men and women have lived and died waiting for the end to come. And still we wait. But the end is at hand. It has drawn near. The point is here, what Peter is driving at, is that we should expect the end to come at any moment. And because of that, we should pray accordingly. And so when Peter says the end is at hand, the end is drawn near, he's emphasizing the fact that Christ's return is what we call imminent. Imminent doesn't mean we can set a date for it. We don't know when the date is. 
Imminent means it could happen at any moment. And so we must be ready. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus taught. You can read it in Mark 13. You can read it in, in, in Matthew and Luke. He taught the same thing over and over again. You need to be ready. Now, it's interesting because what do men do when they believe that the end is near? You ever been, you ever been with somebody? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. I remember one time um, when I was in college, I was traveling with a men's quartet, and we were traveling for Maranatha, um, and we were traveling all over the East Coast, and we were up in Maine, and it was uh, 4th of July, and we, we, we sang at a church there, and they had us, uh, we'd go into a church, and they would have families in the church who would, who would put us up in their homes and let us stay with them. And so um, one of the other men in the group and I, we were staying with a family, and they lived a little bit out in, in the, kind of the sticks. And in Maine, it's like northern Wisconsin, like way northern Wisconsin, only it's worse because there's nothing. Like once you get past a certain point, there's just nothing. And so we started driving, and, and this lady was driving us and her kids, and we're in this big van, and we're driving down this kind of narrow country road. You know, it's the middle of the night. It's dark. It was rainy. It was foggy. And, uh, and the defrost wasn't working right, so the window kept fogging up, you know, and it was just like it was, you know. It w- we were asking about, you know, do you see a lot of deer out here? And she goes, oh, yeah, but don't worry about the deer. And I said, why not? She goes, well, you've got to worry about the moose. <laughs> I said, what? What do you mean? She says, well, if you hit a moose, you're dead. And she goes, they just walk out on the roads. And she goes, if you hit one, we're going 55 miles an hour. She goes, you hit one, that's it. <laughs> and, uh, and she's driving along, and she's driving along trying to clear the windshield, you know, with a paper towel or something, wiping it with her hand. And, she's gonna, and so we're sitting in the back of the van, and I remember Adam and I were sitting there, and we're just like praying. Lord, I don't want to die in the middle of a road in Maine in the middle of the night. Like, I don't get, you know, can we just survive, you know? I mean, when you think the end is near, you pray, right? I mean, when disaster strikes, what do we do? We pray. When, when uh, you know, hurricanes hit or, or other natural disasters happen, what do people do? They pray. What happens when we get sick? When, when uh, severe illness comes and someone is diagnosed with cancer, what do they do? They pray. What about people who have never prayed in their life? when that diagnosis comes or when that crisis hits when they believe that death is right there waiting for them that the end is near what do they do they pray i'm not sure how to do this but i'm going to do it anyways what can i what do i have to lose i mean that's the way that men respond to disaster when we believe that the end is near we pray albert barnes says that the best posture to have when death finds you is the posture of prayer. So, when men believe that the end is near, they pray. It's a natural response. I would suggest to you that's not a bad thing. I would suggest to you that that is completely normal and natural. If you believe that the end is near, then pray. So here's the question for you. Do you believe that Christ could return at any moment? Do you believe that? Then pray. Then pray. This is the the right response. This is natural. This is what should happen. If we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and that He could come back today, then we ought to pray. 
This ought to characterize our life, and that's what Peter is saying. The end of all things is at hand, therefore pray. But there's more than that. This is not just pray. Well, what do we pray for? Well, how do we pray? We don't just pray generically. We have here in this verse another aspect of this we've already mentioned, that prayer is shaped by our faith in Christ's return. See, sometimes Christians, when they talk about the return of Christ, talk about the coming of Christ, um, when we rightly understand that He could come at any moment, sometimes what that does is it leads Christians into what one writer calls eschatological frenzy. That's a big word. just means end time or last things. Okay. Eschatological frenzy. You know people like that? I mean, you turn on the TV... And you turn on just about any kind of Christian TV station, turn on WBCY, and two-thirds of the program you're going to hear is eschatological frenzy. Okay? Oh, look at the things happening here. Look at the things happening here. Look at the newspaper. Read, you know, look at, oh, look at this. Look at this world leader. Look at that world leader. The, the, the things are moving into place. This is totally separate from my notes. But can I submit to you that because Satan does not know when Christ will come back, Satan must always be working to try and put things into place because he doesn't know when Christ is going to come. So for all of history, Satan has been doing the same things over and over and over, moving pieces in this world into place so that he is prepared for when Christ returns. Why? Because he has a big battle plan for that day. Now he's going to lose, and Scripture tells us that, but it doesn't change the fact of what's going to happen. There's always signs of the times if you want to look for them and if you want to try and press them into the Scripture. There's always evidence. There's, you know, I mean, the Antichrist used to be FDR, Joseph Stalin, Henry Kissinger, Barack Obama. I don't know. I mean, just, you, you know, who, go whatever generation you want. You can pick somebody. And there's always been somebody that, you know, a lot of people thought, well, this is guy. This is it. This is the end. The pieces are coming into place. That's not what we should be doing. We're not called to go into a frenzy trying to figure this out. Peter tells us very, very clearly how we should respond. And our prayers, prayer is the right response, but our prayers should be shaped by our faith in Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, there's two things that Peter says here. We should be serious and watchful. The first word, serious, teaches us this, that we should be serious and self-controlled. This is the idea behind that word serious there. Self-controlled. Uh, by the way, this word is used, if you were to turn there to Luke 8, you don't have to turn there, but you remember the story in Luke 8 where Jesus heals the man who was demon-possessed? And it says that when the people of the town came out and they saw him, they saw him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That word right mind is the same word that Peter uses here for serious. This guy who had been insane, out of his mind with a demon, was now in his right mind. Peter says that's how we're supposed to be. In our right mind. So at the very least, this word means not crazy. Okay? I'll help you with that. 
We're not supposed to be crazy. We're not supposed to be insane. We're not supposed to be out of our minds with fear over the coming of Christ. But there's a lot of people that are like that today. And every new headline and every new report on the news and everything just turns their world upside down every moment of every day, and that's not how we're supposed to be. In fact, we're supposed to be the exact opposite of that. We're supposed to be serious and self-controlled in our right minds. Self-controlled in your thinking. I think as we apply this to the idea of prayer, it suggests to us that prayer should be organized. It should be thoughtful. Not just winging it. Not just kind of random whatever thoughts pop into our head come out of our mouth, but we ought to think when we pray. Our prayer ought to be intentional. Our, we, we need to be in our right minds. Okay, We need to have our wits about us when we pray. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think Peter's just really talking here about private prayer. Although I think whatever you could apply to private prayer would also apply to public prayer. But I think Peter is primarily talking to believers in context of public prayer here. When we pray, how do we pray? We should pray thinking. I know that, sounds, it's not, that doesn't sound like really radical stuff, but it really kind of is. Okay. I mean, sometimes we just let our mouth go. And our mind like stops, but our mouth just keeps going. That's not how we should pray. Our prayers should be with our mind fully engaged, completely in control of our thinking. It's, prayer is not a game, you know? Prayer is not an opportunity to show off. Prayer is something serious, and we should take it that way. So our minds and our thinking should be serious and self-controlled as we pray. That's important. Prayer is not something that we just do willy-nilly. It's not something we just wing. It's something that we should think about and organize and plan. And the second thing Peter says here is we're to be watchful. That has the idea of being alert. We should be alert and watchful. This is how we respond. If Christ is going to come back at any moment, then let's pray, but let's pray with self-control. And let's pray with alertness. Okay. Jesus taught his disciples to be watching for his second coming. And what did he say to them in Mark 13? Watch and pray. Or rather, Mark 14. When he took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? And he said, you know, okay, stay here. I'm going to go off here. I'm going to pray. So pray with me. And he goes off and he prays and he comes back. And what are they doing? Sleeping. And Jesus wakes them up and he says, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. To understand something, your flesh, your physical body is weak. You may have good intentions, but you're weak. We think we're strong, but we're not. And so in order for us to be faithful, we have to be alert. We have to be praying. We have to be watchful in our prayers. It requires us to be spiritually alert. This is how we prepare for crisis. And so there's a level of activity here. I think it's important for us to be active, not passive, in waiting for our Lord to return. 
You ever think about that? Jesus says, watch. He says, wait, be ready. Uh, you know, watch and pray for you don't know the hour when the Son of Man is going to come. And we think of that, okay, I'm going to be ready. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing all this stuff and I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to move up to the mountains. I'm just going to live in a compound and I can just sit there every day and I can watch. Right? And it's very passive. That's not the concept here. Peter says, be alert. This is active. It's not passive. We are to be actively engaged in waiting for Christ to return. I know. Actively engaged and waiting don't seem like they go together, but they do. That's what this prayer thing is all about. Prayer can seem like giving up. It seems like doing nothing. Have you ever said to somebody, Man, I wish there was more I can do, but all I can do is pray. Have you ever said that? I've said that. Anybody ever said that? I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't say that. Because when we do that, we're acting as if prayer is doing nothing. As if prayer is somehow giving up or it's passive. That's not what the Scripture indicates prayer is all about. Peter says that you are to be watchful in your prayers. That means be active, be alert, be engaged, not passive. That when you're praying, you're doing something. So don't say, oh, I wish I could do something, but I can, all I can do is pray. No. I can pray for you, and I am, and I will, and I'll continue to do that, and I'm going to be alert and active in praying. I think there's another aspect of this idea of being active in prayer, though, too, and it's this, that when we are actively engaged in the lives of other people, we pray for them. When we are actively engaged in, in the lives of others and their needs, we'll pray. I mean, just think about it this way. If you see yourself as a minister of the gospel, maybe I should put this a different way. Raise of hands, how many of you are ministers of the gospel? Oh, very, very good, very good. You guys, you guys know the right response. That's good. Okay. Usually, you, you all put your hands on and say, no, no, you're the minister of the gospel. Well, no, because we understand this. Every believer, right, is a minister of the gospel. Well, if you see yourself as a minister of the gospel, then if that's how you see yourself, then doesn't that cause you to pray for the lost, for their souls, that you could speak the truth to them, that God would save them as you proclaim the gospel? I mean, if you see yourself as a minister and you're engaged with lost people and you care about them, won't you pray for them? Oh, what about this? What if you see yourself as a minister of the grace of God in the lives of believers? How many of you are ministers of God's grace to believers? Raise your hands if you're a Christian. <laughs> you are a minister of the grace of God to believers. That's why you're here. That's what the church is for. So you can minister the grace of God to each other. Well, guess what? If you view yourself as a minister of the grace of God to these people, then won't you pray for them? I mean, doesn't your heart want to pray for them? Isn't there a desire, a passion to pray for them? Of course there is. That's why it's kind of a trick question. You know that. I know that you guys do that. Because we care about people. We love them. We're engaged in their lives. We know what's going on, and we find out that they have needs. And what do we do? We pray. So this idea of prayer as a passive thing is not, is not biblical. Prayer is active. 
Peter says, be alert, be watchful, be fully engaged in the process of prayer. Now, as I meditated on this verse all week, I keep coming back to the same question over and over again. And it's this, if we're really convinced that Christ could return today, then how would we pray? If I'm really convinced that Christ could return today, then how will I pray? As a church, how should we devote ourselves to prayer? I think there's some obvious applications here from what we've talked about, but I think there's a, a important, I want to just emphasize this connection here that's, that I've already touched on, but it's really important to bring this out. The connection is between our belief in Christ's return and the urgency of prayer. I think we could generalize it and say it this way. What you believe determines how you pray. I think this is true. I think this is what Peter is, is this is what, this principle is undergirding what Peter is saying here. What you believe determines how you pray. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again on the third day so that you could be justified? Do you believe that? Because if you do, then you'll pray. And you'll beg Him to forgive your sins and give you life by His Spirit. Because that's what people do when they realize that Jesus is the Son of God who died for them and rose again so they could have life. They beg Him to save them. See, if you believe it, you'll pray. It's just this natural response. That's what happens. Here's another one. Do you believe that He is the great physician who can heal every disease? Then you'll pray for mercy for those who are ill. Do you believe that your Heavenly Father gives good gifts to His children in order to provide for their needs? If you do, then you'll ask and you'll seek and you'll knock until your voice is heard and your Father is moved to give you what you've asked for. Do you believe that the Almighty Creator, who is Lord of heaven and earth, loves you and He wants to have fellowship with you? You see, if you believe that, then what you will do is you will walk and talk with Him. About what? About anything. About everything that concerns you. You'll enjoy His presence and cast your cares on Him because that's, that's what we do if we believe that He really loves us and cares about us and wants to have that kind of fellowship. Okay. Then we'll pray. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back to earth to rule and to reign as king and to judge the living and the dead. If you do, then you'll pray that his will will be done in your life, in your family, in your church, and in the world. You'll pray for sinners to repent. You'll pray that they'll turn to Christ before it's too late. You'll pray that God's people will be faithful and fruitful until he comes. These are the things that we do if we really believe what Scripture says. And so we could actually say this, that our attitude toward prayer as a church and as individual Christians is like a spiritual thermometer. Do you want to know about the spiritual health of our church? Well, just look at our prayer meetings. How are they attended? How much praying actually takes place? What kind of burdens are lifted up to the Lord? You know, 
on Wednesday, um, this week, I, uh, Wednesday afternoon, I just took the church directory and I just opened it on my desk and I went through the church directory and here's what I did. I wrote down the name of every person that I know who's a family member of one of you who's not saved. All the ones that you've told me about or we've talked about or we've prayed for and I just wrote their names down. The ones I knew the names and some of them I know it's, I know it's well as son and spouse and kids and I don't know all the names but I wrote them down anyways. And I just added, I added up the names. I didn't, I didn't add up all the hangers-on that I don't know the names of. I just added the names. There were over 30 names on that list, and we're not a very big congregation. And that was just off the top of my head in a few minutes on Wednesday afternoon. I'm sure if I sat down with you, you could help me fill it out. There'd be a lot more names to add. I just wrote down the ones that I could think of right then. And there was more than 30 names on that list. See, if we believe that Christ could come back today, then won't we pray for them? These loved ones... These sons and daughters and parents and brothers and sisters and, 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 and other family members. And that's not even counting neighbors and other acquaintances and people that you guys have talked with and met. I mean, I didn't include any of those people on the list. Just family. You see, if we believe that Christ is going to come back, then don't we want to pray for those people? Isn't now the time to pray for them? Can there be any delay? I mean, this is what I think is what we're getting at here. If we believe what we say we believe, then prayer has to happen. It has to flow out of that. You know, if, if prayer is a thermometer, it's interesting because when it's too hot in the room, you don't adjust the thermometer. Right? You follow me on that? When it's too hot in the room or too cold, you don't adjust the thermometer. The thermometer just tells you what it is. You've got to go and, you know, you adjust the thermostat if you want to change that, those things. The thermometer just tells you what it is. I think so many times we're so focused on prayer, we've got to adjust the prayer, we've got to fix the prayer life. And I say, no, we've got to believe what the Bible says. We've got we've to really, truly believe that Jesus Christ is coming back so that we'll have... A burden, a burning desire to pray for those people who are lost. A burning desire to live for the Lord and to see other Christians whom we know doing right and living for God today. And I don't think it's just true of the church. I think it's true of us as individual Christians as well. How much do you pray? How often do you pray? What kinds of situations and concerns do you take to the Lord? Do you pray for the lost to be saved? Do you pray for your own heart needs? Or just physical ones? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in the church? For them to grow spiritually and in wisdom and fruitfulness? What I'm not suggesting this morning is that we go out and set a goal drop a lengthy prayer list and set a goal determining that we're going to regiment our prayer life and we're going to focus on prayer. We're going to make that work. Because that's not how it works. What I'm suggesting to you is this, that you need to draw near to the Lord with your heart and your mind. To love Him and to trust Him completely. And when you do that, you will find that prayer naturally flows out of that relationship. 
I'm suggesting to you that you need to study the Word of God to know it and to believe it and to make it your own. And as you do, you will find yourself talking to the author more and more. You need to draw near to God's people in fellowship. You need to make a commitment to the local church. And as you do, you'll find yourself more involved in the lives of the members of this church and your heart will be moved to pray for their spiritual needs as well as their physical ones. And then especially for their unsaved family and friends. If we, as members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, would take be sober-minded and be watchful when it comes to our Lord's return and to our duty as His servants, then I think it would be obvious to everyone that our fourth core value is prayer-empowered ministry. This would just be obvious when they come on Sundays and they hear us pray as a congregation. Notice I said that that way on purpose. It's On Sundays when we pray, we are engaging together in prayer. It's not just the pastor or one of the deacons up here praying while everyone else fidgets in their seats. It's every member joining their hearts and their minds with the person who is leading in prayer so that we are praying together with that one voice to the Lord. When someone enters into our congregation, that ought to be evident that when we pray, we all pray. They ought, to need, they ought to know it from our conversations as we share prayer requests and as we share thanksgiving and answers to prayer with one another. They ought to see it if they come on Wednesday and gather with us to worship the Lord through prayer, to encourage and strengthen each other through prayer, to seek the power of God in the ministry of this church through prayer. You want to make the best use of the rest of your time, whatever it is? Then live in light of the return of Christ. This means you need a serious, balanced mind and you need an alert and wakeful prayer life. I think it's time for us to make the most of the time we have left. Let's pray.